0: Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limit with Christoph and Luke. Today is, I think it's episode 12. It's recording on the 27th of February, and uh, I'm still here in blizzard conditions in Lake Tahoe. How are you, Christoph?
1: Um, well, Luke, it seems like you're in some ethereal divine space <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> it is did, I, did some slacker uh let you in through the pearly gates by accident it's saint peter they've uh they've lowered their standards
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just ski how's them.
1: your yeah how's your skiing going how's all how's uh the life of of living on the mountaintop i haven't
0: skied in about a week actually so i um i battered myself pretty hard in the terrain park about uh, last sunday and um I thought it would take a few days What off. does that mean? I, uh, I was just being a bit of an idiot. I was, I was following a buddy through the park um at a place called North Star, and they've got this sort of lots of rails, which are kind of what you'd expect, right? Like unforgiving pieces of metal that you kind of ski or snowboard off and then do things. And uh, we've been eyeing up this one particular rail, which just looked particularly ugly, and it had kind of big sort of upward bend at the end and the idea is if you're like a superhero you go off and do a backflip or something we won't do anything like that but uh just try to ride off the damn thing without killing ourselves Anyway, i I failed i nearly murdered myself on the rail so uh yeah it could have been a collar breaking injury at the end of my season i got away with it just a a bad bruise but anyway so my mum's listening because she told me off on facebook the other day for um (laughs) posting something desperately dangerous so uh, i'm absolutely fine (laughs) um So I had a few days off and then I've had a failure as well. I I went to San Francisco. I tried to go to San Francisco uh, four days ago and I was going to have a a weekend out with some friends and then rent a Tesla and drive back to the mountains and then actually experience proper full self-driving because I've got FSD in the UK and it's basically a gimmick, does nothing. Um, And I got Mm -hmm. to to Reno, spent the night there and went and played poker in a different poker room and then my flight got canceled and then it got canceled again. So I gave up and I've come back to Tahoe, but basically we're in and sat this way around and apologies if I kind of white out and you can't see much, like it's supposed to be this beautiful view behind the build <laughs> behind the buildings. There's a lake, right. there's a lake, there's some mountains. It's insane. But actually a blizzard came in uh, last night and it's here for three days. So sort of risk of death if you go outside the front door, apparently. So, uh, I'll be staying in the casino for the next two days living on starbucks and um yeah and waiting for the conditions to pass (laughs) we did get 18 inches of new snow just last night and there's another four feet coming in the next two days so it's going to be incredible conditions when we get back on the mountain oh wow
1: yeah wow so you poor thing have to spend all your time in the casino taking people's money yeah there you go (laughs) (laughs) what a sad existence you you? jealous no blizzards
0: no blizzards in texas i assume
1: no, uh, I sur- you know, we survived the week of being without power. Now it's pretty much springtime. Today might be one of the more gorgeous days we've had. It's it's kind of amazing. Spring has been fast-forwarded by about two weeks mm. due to climate things. And so the blooms are coming out and, you know, the pollen is in the air. And it's, yeah, it's pretty much spring today. So, yeah, yeah. lovely.
0: It's mating season in the Plakarski household. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's always made in season <laughs> in the Pikarski household Luke. <laughs> I know what my genes tell me. I'm a good I'm a good order order follower. So shall we talk about investing stuff? Let's do that. That's why we're here. Where'd you want to start? I think your conversation and thought process about NVIDIA is worth hearing about.
0: Yeah, let's do that. And um and there's a link to poker as well, so I thought it was a good one to chat about on the podcast and get your views too. So uh, I've been pretty public about my own thesis around NVIDIA, the um, graphics card company that are really kind of the future of AI. Um, and the stock has been on a tear in the last couple of weeks, really. It's, it's up significantly. And so we were having a discussion with a couple of members, Heisenberg and G-Man, on our Discord, of 7investing community And the question really was, like, the company delivered pretty meh results last week, a few days ago, and the stock was up on the back of kind of lame results. The AI bandwagon, the force is strong with this thesis right now. Anything that has AI in in the title is getting kind of pumped to the moon, as the Redditors might say. And so NVIDIA have benefited from that. So the question, the legitimate question on the Discord was, like, this is this is probably price for perfection now. Is this a good opportunity to trim or perhaps sell some of the stock, wait for the stock price to come back to earth and then buy back in? And so I can't ever give personalized investment advice. Every investor has to do, I think what makes them most comfortable, but maybe just to share what makes me most comfortable. And it's this concept I'm gonna say of optimizing for the simplicity of future decision-making. So let me break that down a bit and give a poker analogy maybe to start with. So when you're playing poker, like the the winner, ultimately the winner is the person who makes the least mistakes. So one way to improve as a poker player is to try and take decisions that make your future decisions easier. So I'll give an example, actually a a real hand I was in a few days ago in Reno. I'm on the river so it's kind of the end of the hand. We know all the cards and I'm playing against quite a tricky opponent and I've seen him make kind of bold moves several times over the last hour or two. And I've got a pretty strong hand but it certainly doesn't rate to be the best hand. Like I'm in my mind I'm kind of 50-50 whether I'm ahead of him or not. What'd you have? I think I might have had second pair of top kicker on a fairly all over the place board. I was but I was fairly confident I was ahead. So like there, against a more passive opponent, I would definitely go for a value bet on the end, like try and put in maybe a third of the pot and hope that my opponent calls behind and I get a, a little extra money. But against this particular opponent, I know in his arsenal, he's got a bunch of check raises with worse hands, i.e. like he's allowed me to bet, I bet, and then he, he puts a very significant bet in. We've both got quite deep stacks at this point in the hand. Um, so if I go for my value bet against this particular opponent, he might check raise me and I'm going to have a really tough decision because he could have nothing uh, or he could have a a significantly better hand. And so I kind of took the, you could say like the chicken's way out by just checking behind and I was ahead, you know, I won the hand. Um, But I took a decision that made my next decision, well, it basically mitigated the need for that next decision because I could have made... big mistake on that next decision and that's that's you know one way of reducing your variance in poker a little bit reducing your potential to make errors and ideally sort of improving your results so bringing this idea back to nvidia um, and the suggestion from some of our discord members maybe you should sell a bit and then buy back in later well for me if i'm doing that i'm kind of setting myself up to have to make a difficult decision in the future which i might screw up if i sell half or all of my nvidia stock and i'm waiting for the stock price to go down well you know maybe it does maybe it doesn't um but i'm i'm gonna have to keep asking myself that question almost every day like is it time to buy back in is it time to buy back in so i've got this thing you know consuming cognitive bandwidth and then what if i miss the bottom i have no ability to time stocks time the market and if the stock starts going back up you know worst case here maybe i miss buying back in ever and so i kind of find myself not owning nvidia when it goes on what i believe believe honestly is going to be you know a significant market beating potential over the long term so even though it's probably likely the company is going to take a bit of a valuation haircut over the next few months maybe the next few years the long term i don't think is impacted if anything i would say Most recent results from the company tell us the long term is stronger than ever, given the partnerships it's forging with the hyperscalers and companies like Microsoft and Oracle. I would just prefer to keep it simple, not sweat what's gonna happen in the short term, focus on the reason why I own this company, and then just continue to hold it through thick and thin. If the thesis really breaks, that's when I'll reevaluate it. But just because it's expensive uh, on a valuation basis, that's not thesis breaking for me right now.
1: Man, that's a lot, there's a lot in there. I think I I try to follow your same framework. My name for it is, know the game you're playing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of analogous to what you were talking about, right? That there's money to be made in, let's say, moving in and out of stocks based on all kinds of factors. but let technical and momentum and short-term thesis changes and all that and then there's a way to make money in the very very long term right buy hold and the massive winners will take care of everything yep. but it does come down to the error correct me if i'm wrong luke is that if you find yourself in the gray area and you somehow forget or or drift from your core base approach that you you call yourself, let's say, a long-term investor, but all of a sudden you start selling and buying based on things like valuation, that you're drifting from your 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 core sensibilities to this gray area, and that's where you're gonna get hosed. But, Is that kind of what you're saying?
0: Uh, potentially, and that, that's definitely another important factor. As you say, you know, play the game that you're strongest at.
1: So, right, maybe to to be more clear, if you've decided that you're a long-term shareholder of NVIDIA in this case, then, regardless of what the bumps that happen in the matter of months or years, you're keeping simple the decision to not even worry about selling out unless a catastrophic thing comes along. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Unless actually think about just the maths of it. Perhaps I don't know if I can do this on the fly, but if we, you know, let's say we own a thousand dollars worth of Nvidia today, and if we genuinely believe, believe that's going to be worth five thousand dollars in 20 years time. Right, I'm just making these numbers up. Um so if we just sit and hold sit firm we're going to make 4000 bucks over the long term. Like if the thesis stands up, you know, clearly anything could happen. But if we go around trimming and trying to buy back in, let's say we sell the whole thing and then we wait for the stock to go down, I don't know, 25% and let's say we succeed in doing that and we manage to buy back in for say $750. Well, when the stock gets back up i guess if we proportionally bought the same amount maybe we've made like an extra $1000 over that period but what if we failed to buy back in right so we okay we saved ourselves the $250 haircut in the short term but we just we never bought back in because we we made a mistake um we didn't catch the bottom and uh, and suddenly maybe the stock price was above the $1000 we owned before And so, um, so we're like, oh, we'll just wait for it to get down again. And maybe it never comes down again. You know, for me, that's the doomsday scenario where in trying to save a couple of hundred bucks, I end up missing out on a couple of thousand dollars, which is what the long-term thesis is going to deliver me.
1: And on top of that, let's not forget taxes. That's a huge consideration, which maybe beginning investors totally forget that the moment you sell, you're now, you're getting a bill on the assumption that there was gain. So that's one. But also maybe from for me, there's an even more uh, unquantifiable bit to this, which most people ignore, but it's maybe the most meaningful, which is time. I mean, I know this sounds, I mean, it, it's metaphysical and it's not. To trade in and out like this costs you time, your actual life. And because you have to be paying attention, you're going in and out. In theory, if you extrapolate this to the extremes, buy once, check back 20 years later, has saved you a whole lot of time. Sure. Yep. And
0: uh, emotional turmoil along the journey. If you just, If you're able to literally coffee can that stock and forget about it for two decades.
1: Can I engender a little more conversation on this topic with you, Luke? Specific to NVIDIA, I think it's fascinating that there's now this broad thing called AI... And if it has AI, you know, people are buying up this thing, right? But that, that's a very, I think, unsophisticated way of thinking about it, right? Because it's just a marketing scheme at this point. You want to, as an investor, ask yourself, is this maybe core AI that can't easily be marketed? And I would argue that something that NVIDIA does is representative of core AI capacity, that there are few companies in the world that could do exactly what NVIDIA is doing. And AI, the whole infrastructure of AI basically runs on its capacities. Therefore, it's not one of these, oh, and by the way, we have AI plugins. And I've been guilty of that too a little bit, you know, because in trying to find AI companies, I'm like, oh, does it have an AI element? But now, most of the time it will, but how deep is it? Right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah,
0: like um, like some companies will literally just be bolting AI onto their what their actual core is, and then you know getting some sort of AI uplift. But the company like Nvidia really are fundamental to the whole thesis. Like AI can't happen without companies like Taiwan Semi, ASML, Nvidia, AMD and arguably the hyperscalers who are building their own hardware, right? That stuff all needs to be in place. It's the building blocks for everything else. And I think that's what makes this, in my mind, actually the strongest investing thesis I currently hold for the 10 year period.
1: Oh, that's interesting, right? Cause I was thinking Tesla mm-hmm. and the reason yeah. for that in part is my definition of core AI being, is the data set proprietary? And when I think of say full self-driving, over however many millions of miles i could see that no other company has access to that data that's what makes it a unique case versus you know the commodified uh, data is everywhere now you're getting the replicants and the the yeah the watered down version of search but, that's a,
0: that's a really interesting rabbit hole um because like ai as a capability is suddenly allowing companies to to extract much more utility from the mountains of data that they have so i know let's take my ex-employer hsbc right we had literally decades and decades of payment transactions and data that could be mined for kind of marketing insights to our customers and the company just does nothing with it because it has no idea how to use that data effectively well suddenly you could point the right kind of AI tools at this monstrous quantities of data and suddenly start using that information in really interesting proprietary ways to really make your business model much more robust. So companies that do have these mountains of data, if they're not scurrying around and trying to figure out how different AI techniques can help them, well, they they really should start doing that immediately. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, agreed. The second thing I wanted to to get your take on Luke is you mentioned this concept of price to perfection. Mm. And I think that's a, that's a tr- tricky concept because
0: I should have thrown like air on, quotes around that because I don't really believe that at all. But, um, but that's, what,
1: yeah, but you know, yeah. it's, it's one of, I think it's one of these things that is true and not true at the same time, mm. because on the, on the one hand uh, I could, based on everything we've said so far, I could easily understand that to mean even though NVIDIA is still expensive or expensive at this moment, given where it's going to be 20 years from now, the expensiveness or high valuation is still way less than what it will be. Right? In other words, that the high price, however high it might feel, comparatively is not going to be that high. Versus something like a bubble, which we just lived through, Where the expectations were beyond perfection, and the real question then ends up being, can we tell the difference?
0: Like really, anything could happen. The thesis could break. You know, the company could have some significant failing in the next this week, and uh, you know that could significantly impact its prospects. But um, the balance of probabilities, having analysed the thesis in some depth multiple times, leads me to believe that the chances of making a multi-bagger return from here outweigh the chances of the stock crumbling into dust over the long term. But that none of that tells us anything about what the stock price is going to do this week, next month, next year.
1: Yeah, this is that gray area in investing again where you need to have begin developing, I think, some intuition and discernment between expensive versus unrealistic. Yep there is no correct formula for that. Everything depends on the specifics of the company you're looking at. But in this case, in this particular case that we're talking about Nvidia as being in quotes, priced to perfection, it does not feel to me, like bubble terrier just means you need to wait, like you were saying a long time for the thesis to really play out.
0: Yeah, yeah agreed. But again, this is all a long term view. And I almost expect the stock to take a valuation haircut over the next few months, but I'm not going to trade in, in anticipation of that.
1: Yeah. And in fact, the way you could frame it to to yourself is if it does drop, you just get to say, oh good, if I have extra capital, I could add even more.
0: Exactly right. And I'm I'm still building my NVIDIA position. I've, we had this discussion on the Discord, exactly. I've, I've purchased it twice, my own portfolio, and I'd love to increase my exposure to it. So... Yeah, actually, quite right. I'm looking forward to a bit of a drop so I can buy another piece. Yeah, me too. Should we uh, should we talk about lottery tickets and investing?
1: Yeah. Anyone following my own recommendation so far for 7investing might really see a, a platypus investing style because I don't have one industry or one category that I look for. It really is sort of all over the place, like a, like a mismatched animal with... with <laughs> with all kinds of uh, parts and hinges, which, by the way, uh, oh my God, the book I'm reading, uh, my book of the week is just mind-blowing, and it includes discussion of platypuses. So more on that uh, later in this episode. But I found myself spending the last two weeks or so going down a rabbit hole in a direction, investing direction I would kind of call the fringes. And now I know, Luke, one of your recent investing recommendations from a couple months back you know i think you started the presentation with warning and like you know this is (laughs) right and and uh i mean i'm I'm not sure you could call that fringes that that could be maybe just like a a a bet on innovation that's a way off from becoming viable i'm actually (laughs) talking about situations that are fringe like because Uh, you have the the components of the situation are very specific. And um, there's a problem, usually there's something kind of think turnarounds and bad financial situations and or some special catalyst that maybe only a few insiders know about. Otherwise, the company is really kind of unseen, and the catalyst may or may not show up. And so you're sort of these are the things I kind of think about as trying to read tea leaves and I label them lottery tickets very deliberately because as I do my research and let's say that and and look for evidence and let's say in a good case scenario that evidence continues to mount that the that the thesis is tenable that we're uh, in terms of probability that the in poker terms, I guess it, it, the your hand is transforming from say uh, you know eight ten of clubs to uh, king queen to maybe you know uh, a pair of sevens or you know maybe jacks, so that the before the flop, the probability of you winning the hand is steadily increasing as the evidence mounts. Right, so we know you're never going to beat the house in in gambling. And so when you sit down at the roulette, you may or may not win, but the odds are against you. In the cases I'm talking about, I'm only interested if I really think the probabilities are in my favor. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that's way different from a lottery where the odds of you winning are pretty much zero. Nonetheless, I still think of it as a lottery ticket investment category. Because it's not based on what I would say a long-term foundational belief in the company's uh, durability. I'm specifically looking at the situation as a kind of one-time, will-all-the-evidence-amount-to-a-big-pop kind of thing. And if I'm right, then I win the lottery, right? And I have only so much time to place my bets because there's a catalyst in the wings and so forth. And the reason I'm mentioning this today is because on my radar is one such company that I discovered, and it might become my April recommendation for Seven Investing. Okay. But the strange situation is that the catalyst might very much show up at the end of February or sometime in mid mid March or sometime maybe even by the end of March, in which case the big pop would come before the recommendation <laughs> comes out. So it's hard to, you know. Um, Who knows? Who knows what will happen? But the real incentive for me even doing this work is because sometimes when the market is so wonky and the strongest companies are having a hard time and growth is slowing and you're like, where do I look? Where do I look? I think there's always opportunities to make money in the market if you do, in fact, know where to start sniffing. And my own answer to that is something I talked about, I think, early on in our podcast, Luke, that what I found throughout my investing career over the 25 years plus is I think something you might have learned or maybe you excel at, you know, in the the world of actual business is that what tends to matter most is the quality of the people that you surround yourself with. And over time, knowing what network-like relationships you can build and depend upon in a bi-directional way so that you're not alone kind of, you know, being a Sherlock Holmes figure, but instead you can be pretty confident, though of course never exactly 100% confident, that the information you're getting is authentic, that this isn't some kind of scam artist or gamesmanship or kind of in it for yourself, uh, weird situation. And that piece in my history as an investor has helped me more pretty much than anything else. And it seems fluffy. Maybe, fl- I don't know fluffy is the, the right word, but if you're in with the wrong set of investors, you're going to be hosed. If you're in with the right set of investors, you're going to do well because of the checks and balances. And I guess that's pretty much to land this spiel as another one of these, I guess, uh, implicit ad- advertisements for Seven Investing, I would argue that the seven of us are trustworthy characters. And so if there's a piece of information that comes out that is problematic or or enthusiastic, at the very least, you ought to know if you're on our side, if you believe in our trustworthiness, that it's worth investigating further.
0: And I, I agree. But I would say as well, the service isn't about... Hey, trust us. We're the experts. It's about like, we are the experts. We've done a bunch of research. Here is the rationale. Now make your own decision, but we're trying to give you all of the building blocks and, you know, expedite your own research process and coming, coming back to your sort of surround yourself with smart people comment, like the power of being a team of seven advisors with actually, you know, fairly diverse range of opinions and approaches to investing. That is really quite valuable. I've, I'm shocked, actually, like I found myself quite aligned to our colleague, Matt Cochran's investing approach over the last year or so, even though I came to Seven Investing thinking I was this kind of crazy, wild growth investor, a number of the picks I've made are actually from uh, Matt's own personal portfolio and the companies that he's quite close to, Mm -hmm. um, which has surprised me. It's interesting to have that range of approaches and then you know, pick and choose from them, take take the elements of different people's uh, strongest characteristics and try and make them your own.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and maybe to um, to flesh this out a little bit more, I'm really talking about there being a huge difference when you're trying to look in corners where not everyone is looking. Mm-hmm. Because that is that contrarian piece I was talking about last week. It's not just about finding the best businesses. You have to find the best businesses that everybody else, for one reason or another, is undervaluing, discounting, not looking at, forgot about, on and on. But when you're looking in these lottery ticket-like corners, you're going to see cobwebs, and you're going to see spiders, and you're going to see some nasty stuff in there because no one else is looking, right? It's like that dusty attic. (laughs) So how then can you kind of make sense of the creepy crawlies Uh, and in those kinds of corners you get scam artists and you get the pump and dumpers and you get the sort of all kinds of machinations that on the surface might appear legitimate but but the moment you look at the kind of character that is recommending you this evidence or sharing this evidence with you and if they're shady or sketchy run you know run fast because odds are it's not going to end well but if, in fact, you know, you have a sense of quality and character, despite it being in the creepy crawly attic, there's further reason for you now to continue your due diligence, look with your own eyes, knowing that you're now in, in this together with some eagles, eagle like eyes, right? And that kind of makes a big difference.
0: So cutting to the punch. So it sounds like you've got one of these lottery tickets. You've done some research. You've kind of weeded through the cobwebs and the spiders, and you think there might be some gold hidden under that web. Um, and but I, I guess you're not going to tell us what the stock is, though, right? We have to we have to join up and then be a member on the first of April, and hopefully the lottery hasn't paid out before then.
1: That's right. I guess that that you that value sense, yeah, that's the whole reason to join our, our community is to get this information that's exclusive. But on the other hand, I don't know yet whether I will make this recommendation or not. I have actually taken the position in it myself. Uh, but whether I will have that position by April or not, or is, is unknown. So stay tuned.
0: Cool. Look forward to uh, seeing what's to come.
1: All right, Luke. Do you want to? Do we want to switch gears?
0: So we said last week we were going to take a trawl through Ark Invest's uh, big ideas twenty twenty three, and I think they had fourteen different investing theses, and they tried to set out quite a nice deck. It's worth well worth a read. It's a, a free read if you go to check out their website, um, and we said we'd dive into one of the topics each week. So this week I thought I would take a look at a bit of a wild one at the end of their deck, Orbital Aerospace. You want to hear a little bit about this?
1: I know nothing.
0: <laughs> I know something. Uh, I am a Rocket Lab shareholder, personally. Uh, I think they're a really interesting company, and I would love to be a SpaceX shareholder, but uh, but that's not, not permitted right now. They're still a private company. But let's talk about ARK Invest thesis around this topic. So Orbital Aerospace, basically like putting... Infrastructure putting stuff into orbit. So, first of all, why do ARC think this is a mega trend and a, an interesting investment theme? So, the main thing is around the cost of putting mass into orbit. So, up until like the 2000s, it used to cost upwards of $18,000 to put one kilogram into orbit. So, like, I know I weigh 65 odd kilos. Um, I couldn't tell you what what sixty five times eighteen is, but it's a lot of money. I couldn't afford to put myself into order right now, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but that price has come down significantly. So today, and we'll talk about why. Today, that cost is down to about two thousand dollars per kilogram. So I could kind of I could orbit myself for just over a hundred thousand dollars, and that price is expected to come down, perhaps as low as a hundred and thirty dollars per kilo, perhaps even lower than that. So, why is that cost coming down significantly, and what does it mean? Well, the reason why is really SpaceX pioneering reusable rockets. So instead of like throwing stuff into space and then everything falls into the ocean and then just sort of sinks to the bottom and mm-hmm. clutters up like the fishy homeland, uh, we're now able to recover rockets. A little company called Rocket Lab are doing that by literally like catching stuff with helicopters as it as it parachutes to earth SpaceX are doing it in a super sci-fi way by literally like landing the boosters and then reusing them and in fact SpaceX Falcon 9 now has a booster that's flown 14 times that's pretty impressive Um, Mm -hmm. now uh, let's distinguish uh, what we mean by putting stuff into orbit so actually the kind of interesting place right now is LEO, Low Earth Orbit, which is about 300 miles up. So this is an interesting place to be putting stuff right now because what SpaceX are doing is they're they're deploying Starlink. So they recently had their 200th um, Falcon 9 launch uh, just a few weeks ago, I think. And as part of that launch, they deployed another 53 Starlink satellites. It's actually incredible watching the deployment of the stuff Looks like something out of James Bond. Like the the deployment mechanism opens up, this huge array of satellites come out, and then they kind of all unfold, and then they start to, you know, drift into their uh, deployed position as they start to orbit the Earth. So, like SpaceX are putting up like 50 at a time satellites. They've got there are something like 3,500 Starlink satellites up there right now, which is more than half of all the stuff we've got in orbit. So just over 5,000 active satellites up there today um, and it's expected by the end of this decade could have almost 60,000 satellites in orbit so um, you know what are the Starlink satellites doing why are they up there they're creating this planet-wide internet basically so if you've got a Starlink antenna, which is like a little base station, looks like an old-style kind of satellite dish. If you've got one of those in your back garden or on your roof, you can now connect to the Starlink network, and you can get pretty impressive um, connection to the internet uh, from anywhere on the planet. So that's quite interesting. Um, And because these are low Earth orbit, only 300 miles up, you get what's known as low latency. So... Uh, latency is basically how long it takes to get a reply back from the satellite. So low latency is important if we're having say a live video conversation, because I don't want like a two second delay, otherwise we'd be kind of looking at each other and wouldn't be a very engaging conversation. If you're doing, I don't know, something like high frequency trading or something like some application like that, very important to have very quick response times, you can see what's happening. Um, If you're playing computer games, you want very low latency because you don't want to hit the fire button in your game yeah. and then the rocket shoots off like a second too late and then you miss your target.
1: Is this look uh, a, a key ingredient to the future of the metaverse? Because of the late latency being a prime mandate, you can't have a metaverse with with latency. Then. Yeah, absolutely,
0: hundred percent. Yeah. Like you wouldn't want to walk into some sort of VR environment and start mm-hmm. chatting to some other avatar and you've got this delay and everyone's kind of jerking around and teleporting around the room when you should be like a nice, smooth, engaging experience. So, Starlink aren't there yet. Uh, they claim that they that they can offer latency of twenty to forty milliseconds, which is pretty good, almost comparable with like a good broadband connection. Um, I, I did find a gaming magazine who had tested this, and they found that that was kind of optimal conditions, and actually it was more like forty to fifty milliseconds, sometimes a hundred milliseconds, but. Starlink have only got three and a half thousand satellites up there. And this stuff is, it's not like geostationary, kind of constantly overhead. These things are whizzing around the earth, like every two hours they do an orbit. So the more satellites in space, you can imagine they're like this big network, a constellation. Um, The more there are up there, the more likely is you've got one nearby at any time. And then you're just going to get much more reliable, consistent internet infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So this stuff is real important in terms of bringing the internet to remote communities. If you're a, a villager somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, and maybe you don't have access to like a good 4G network or a 3G network, you're kind of offline. Um, there could be some incredible talent, some incredible business opportunities there that are, are going unrealized because these communities are not fully connected to you know this wealth of information that's that the rest of the planet are enjoying. So I think that's going to be really fantastic for the world to kind of bring us all online. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you know, for my own sort of selfish benefit, if I'm out on an airliner or a cruise ship, suddenly I could have access. You could, you can put a Starlink antenna on your recreational vehicle um, on boats. So so suddenly it's nice to be able to have access from anywhere. I think that's pretty valuable. And I'm not on T-Mobile, but a deal that, T-Mobile inked with SpaceX uh, back in Q3 last year, means that if you've got a T-Mobile contract, I'm not sure when, but at some point in the next year or so, suddenly you'll be able to send and receive text messages from anywhere in the world with your existing phone, because that's powerful enough to uh, send and receive Mm -hmm. like a low low bandwidth data connection to the Starlink network, so that's Mm -hmm. incredible.
1: So, Luke, can I ask you about the maybe what feels to me the obvious bear case? In terms of the wow factor of the technology or the necessity of the technology, I'm on board. I'm with you on all of it. But isn't what am I missing when I think, okay, you send a whole bunch of stuff up into space for, let's say, a few years. Now you've set up all the space toys. They're floating <laughs> around up there. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But where does future revenue come from why keep sending rockets up there when you've already done the things right, yeah, but... first off
0: like we've we've already invented everything that we could ever invent right <laughs> the uh, <laughs> like every, every, every I think starlink are on their third generation of satellite design so you know they're gonna keep innovating and keep finding ways to improve the bandwidth and I don't know about you like at, at home I've got maybe a 50 megabit uh, connection reliably, and maybe 10 or 20 megabit upload, like, that's pretty poor compared to most of the developed world, but the UK, certainly my road anyway, isn't properly connected. Um, I would love to have gigabit. And once I've got gigabit, if someone could offer me like 10 gigabit, well, hey, I'll take it, right? People are always going to want more and find ways to use more. And particularly if the metaverse becomes real, right? That's going to be a potentially a huge bandwidth uh, consumer yeah. um, for you know anybody who's connected. But let, even, let's park the comms side of things, because there's a bunch of other good reasons why there's benefits in putting stuff in space. So you've heard of the International Space Station. That's a collaboration between 15 or 20 countries, including Russia and the US. Um, well, the ISS was put up there, I think, 21 years ago. It was only expected to have a 15-year lifespan. And it's still flying around, orbiting the Earth in a low Earth orbit. Actually, so it's it's that sort of 400 kilometers, 500 kilometers up, I think. Um, and it has to get boosted a couple of times a year because they have to keep it in orbit. Otherwise, it's just gonna kind of fall into the ocean. Well, I think NASA uh, are planning to deorbit it. Like it's nearly had its time now. NASA are planning to deorbit it, it around 2030, I think, and then it it will land somewhere safely in the Pacific. Hopefully, safely in 2031. Well, we have to replace that with something. So now a whole bunch of private companies are planning to build their own private space stations. I know this sounds like sci-fi, but this is real. So companies like Blue Origin, which was uh, Jeff Bezos's new endeavor, Northrop Grumman, Axiom, Nanoracks, Sierra Space, these companies are all already working on private space stations. And you might say, well, why? You know, there's Uh, There is the obvious sort of scientific benefits and the ability to, um, you know, run experiments and understand the universe a bit better by doing stuff in space. There's advantages in doing that. But also tourism at some point, if you've got private space stations, hey, who wouldn't want to uh, go take an orbit around the Earth for like a week's vacation? That could be interesting. Um, But as we start building real orbital infrastructure, there's huge benefits to society as a whole, right? You've got literally... Trillions of dollars of value in minerals and things kind of flying through our solar system. Uh, these, you know, m- heavily mineral rich asteroids, where right? we could start legitimately thinking about mining those if we've got a whole load of stuff in space, because it's expensive currently to get stuff into space. Once it's there, it's relatively cheap to maintain it. Um, so we could start uh, suddenly have access to potentially. Kind of unlimited mineral reserves you know everyone's worrying about can we continue to sustain production of batteries and battery tech because we've got all these kind of rare earth elements that we need to get access to to build batteries at scale well there's literally trillions of tons of this stuff flying around in space that could be uh, captured and harvested and then you know de mm. um and once we can start build doing that you know, we can start building stuff at scale in orbit Um, we don't have to um, lift mass up from the earth which is hard to do still um, because it's all kind of there waiting for us and maybe you know start 3d printing stuff from raw materials in space you know this is going to be a stepping stone i think orbit stepping stone to building something on the moon stepping stone to building something on mars stepping stone to polluting the rest of the universe with our kind of crazy species
1: Okay, so the industry is much, much greater than I could even envision with my poor Earthman's philosophy. And what I hear you saying is, you're going to be one of the first humans on Mars. Is that right?
0: I don't expect a <laughs> is
1: that is that what I heard? <laughs> That's what I think I heard. Is that you're 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 leaving snowboarding and skiing behind? <laughs> boring. Uh, motorcycling. Boring. Luke's going to Mars, folks. Luke is going to Mars. You heard it here first. On the Seven Investing Pod. Awesome. Our first uh, Martian.
0: (laughs) Well, certainly my investing theses are going to Mars. uh, To say that this stuff is like a trillion dollar industry, I think is wildly underestimating how much value uh, there is to be had once we
1: actually conquer space. So fascinating. Yeah. All right. Let's see how this plays out. But uh, we have some... uh, Orbital Aerospace Investments in the Seven Investing Ecosystem. So if you want a deep dive report into some of the stuff that Luke was talking about, you know where to go.
0: And do go check out that ARK Invest deck. So I think next time we're going to tackle the topic of smart contracts. Is that right?
1: Uh, That's my aspiration, Luke. Cool. Look forward to hearing about that one. In the meantime, I want to give a quick mention of a book I just finished uh, for Mm. a class I'm teaching which is called an immense world. How animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us, and what was I mean, this book is is a narrative of experiment after experiment after experiment into the ways we're finding out all the fascinating senses that animals have that allow them to perceive in ways we can't even fathom on a literal level. And I'm not going to bore you to death with with all of it, but it's, it's, I, I was truly fascinated by it, but I'll mention two specific examples I thought were really mind-blowing. One of them has to do with the sense of, uh, echolocation and we're familiar, the, the best examples of that are bats and dolphins who kind of combine, Uh, sound and in the sense they translate sound coming back as a kind of way of touching things and the fact that dolphins could discover tiny tiny nuanced differences from a big distance away is really mind-blowing but uh, in in that chapter and the only example in the entire book was a human and this human Luke I don't know if you heard of something like this This uh, young man was born and then lost his eyesight, I think, if memory serves, like several months into his life. And for whatever reason, he developed or started clicking, making audible sounds. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously when he's still two years, you know, very, very, very young. And by starting to click and make auditory sounds early on, his mind's capacity to interpret sound grew kind of like the way we pick up language really fast early on. And he kept developing this talent so that now as a mature adult, he can, he walks around. He also uses things like canes because he's blind, but he clicks like a dolphin or a bat does. And he could actually walk around a neighborhood, put him in any say neighborhood with streets, and he'll tell you, the kind of material the houses are around him, where cars are parked. In other words, he's seeing like a doll, to some extent. He's actually seeing while blind to the extent that he's actually able to ride bikes while being blind without crashing, which I thought was like totally mind-blowing uh, and inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. That that our, our our minds are really capable of miracles, really. If we train them properly on a certain mission, and his mission was to see without light and eyes, you
0: wouldn't you wouldn't even think we had the physiology in our ears to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, um, and now he he makes his living by coaching blind people, you know, to ways to develop way more profound capacities in in this way. Which curiously, this is a little bit of a provocative thing. Some people in the blind community think he's doing a disservice because they kind of think of themselves as having, you know, a certain way of living. And he's challenging the notion that blind people can't see, which is a little bit disruptive. But, you know, that's a whole nother thing. It's pretty profound. Uh, the other the other fascinating example was, was about the sense of magnetic perception, which... Uh, revolves around animals, like birds and turtles, knowing where to migrate thousands and thousands of miles away through, uh, by perceiving the Earth's own magnetic fields. So you could spin them whichever way you want, you could blindfold them, you could plug up their ears, noses, and whatever, and they'll still find their way back to exactly the same point that they departed. But we still really don't know fundamentally how this sense works. But one of the main leading theses I thought was just mind boggling, and I don't understand this. So forgive me if if I butcher this, but it has something to do with light coming into the animal's eyes, and then using the concepts derived from quantum theory and quantum entanglement, that the way entangled particles in the field of vision respond to light tells them something about the magnetic field so that this sense literally uh, is a kind of embodied way of making of using quantum uncertainty to uh, it's (laughs) yes the expression of your on your face (laughs) is exactly the right one in other words in other words the way that that living creatures perceive things on this planet is so mind-bogglingly more sophisticated and more miraculous and more misunderstood than we have any idea about. And I mentioned this in part, you know, I like making connections to investing and it, and I was like, how am I going to connect this to things we've talked about, I kind of think of this notion of expanding your awareness of your own sensibilities to the investing framework. And you could do that by asking yourself when you invest, what do you primarily rely upon? Like what how do you do the thing that you do? And you could be, uh, you could rely on numbers, right? Or you could rely on n- narratives, or you could rely on sort of people like I was alluding to, or like some animals on this planet, including ourselves, there's a way what something happens when you deliberately focus on the way you do the things you do, that that sense actually grows and becomes more and more accurate. So... Obviously this book is not a book about investing. It's a book of science and with some philosophy thrown in, but it's really affecting me personally, how I perceive the world. And the more open I get, the more I feel like I become better at all the things that I do.
0: Yeah, very good. What are your undiscovered senses you think in that, in that sense then that you're gonna try and develop a bit like, you know, the, the, the blind chap teaching people to echolocate Are you going to echo echo like the next
1: investment? It it might be. It might be. There's a chapter not just on the individual senses, but in the ways all the senses unite. Like uh, an octopus is the main character in that chapter, where you could instead of separating these things, you're really thinking about how all of the senses add up to a greater sum than their parts. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's maybe where if you're weak in one area of investing. I don't think you have to become a a master at it, but if you simply become a little more aware of that way of doing things and add it to your repertoire, your whole sensibility grows more than if that's the only way you do things. So I don't know if that, I hope that's useful to some extent.
0: Yeah, very cool. I'm definitely going to research this guy. That sounds very interesting. Kirsch,
1: I think, might be his last name. Shall I ask you uh uh three questions reject you reject one and and I determine the the other
0: uh let's do it. Let's play the three conversations game
1: so these are because I'm a slacker and did not adequately prepare in time for today's conversation. <laughs> these are questions Luke was intending to ask me, which for one reason or another I denied in previous episodes. Oh. so right back at you buddy thanks for for <laughs> for being a good sport. so here are your questions option one are flat earthers just having a, a laugh at the rest of us or do they really believe this stuff you
0: you answered this one
1: um so uh, yeah oh you did, did i yeah
0: that's cool Go on. yeah I'll, I'll probably reject him but you answered you gave a great answer this one which i can't improve on, Go on. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what's the best meal you could prepare for a dollar okay and what will be the biggest impact of ai on society In, if I'll make it more specific, in 10 years. Okay.
0: Uh, Well, I'll I'll reject the flat earthers just because, yeah, we did all, you answered that one. I can't improve on it.
1: Okay. So I'm in a futuristic state of mind. 10 years from now, AI, the biggest thing, the biggest thing (laughs) that's going to be like, you know, time traveler 10 years from now or 10, yeah, we'll be like, holy, holy moly. Right. Uh one immediate answer comes to mind but it's not a nice answer
0: but it's 10 years it might be a bit soon but maybe in 20 years so uh, and I'll try and think of a happier answer as well while I'm talking about this so there is this thing the singularity and I'm not remotely religious or you know have any kind of beliefs in that way but um, essentially when we reach the singularity essentially we're creating like our version of a god figure, right? Some super intelligence that essentially is uh, omnipotent and omniscient. So, uh, you know, so what I don't think it's going to happen in 10 years, it's probably 20 years, but the biggest impact on society is probably the end of society as we know it, when this thing finally happens, because essentially we created this intelligence that far exceeds our own ability to kind of outmaneuver it and shut it down Um, and then we either end up in a scenario where we are the pets of this benevolent uh, dictatorship and maybe that's like a really happy rosy society that we're nurtured in or we're just the irrelevant ants and this thing extinguishes us because we're you know we're not beneficial to its Mm -hmm. long-term mission whatever it decides that might be so that's probably the biggest impact on society, and that is going to happen, and I think it's probably going to happen in the next 30 years, um, but it could be in the next 10 years. Um, I didn't think of a happy example while I was talking there.
1: Luke, re- remind, yeah, remind me. Remind me not to invite you to any parties. <laughs> <laughs> Who brought this guy? <laughs> he looks chipper and cheerful on the outside, but...
0: It could be a happy society, right? We're going gonna—we're probably going to murder ourselves um, in the next 20 or 30 years anyway, maybe sooner than that. So, like, I, i for one, welcome our AI overlords.
1: <laughs> okay, so death to everything and everyone, and it's really going to be bad. Or, or
0: okay. it might be very good, but we, we have no way of influencing that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, right, right, right. All right. Should have asked me so about that...
0: the, uh, the $1 meal. It would have been a happier result. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, in that case, I was really terrified. You know, you'd answer a can of beans, and we'd be no better yeah. off.
0: <laughs> I'm not bad in the kitchen. It was <laughs> knocky. I, I, not, I make a pretty good knocky. And I could do that for a, a dollar.
1: <laughs> nice. All right. Well, that
0: brings episode twelve to a close. Uh, like we've now got a dozen. I'm uh, lucky. Episode thirteen in two weeks' time. Hopefully, we haven't had the singularity by then and been extinguished.
1: Luke Hallard is at seven. Luke Hallard on the twitters, and I'm at seven. Flying platypus. And you could find our deep dive reports on seveninvesting.com.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode and got some value out of it, do us a favor and please share it with a friend. Until next time.